I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. I got a question for you. How many robocalls or mysterious calls are you getting a day? I get so many of them, even as the cell phone carriers are supposed to be using, is it shaken and stirred or stirred and shaken? Which is technology that's supposed to eliminate them. I'm still getting them. Well, you're not going to believe this, but one company has been sued for making how many calls? 7.5 billion calls to us as Americans. I'm going to tell you what to do. My best advice for you. And also, I've talked about Airbnb a few times recently. Do you know that the fees added on to an Airbnb can be downright shocking? I'm going to share some key numbers with you. So speaking of key numbers, that $7.5 billion from one organization, $7.5 billion junk calls to Americans. This is just unbelievable to think about, that there are slimy sorts out there who want to make money by cheating you with all these calls. And I still get a number every day. Often they'll be from an area code that's local to me. A new trick I've discovered is they'll call and then they'll turn around and call again within just a few seconds. That's a trick on you that you think, "Uh uh-oh, something's wrong. Somebody's trying to reach me. Maybe somebody's hurt. And you answer that UFO number and then it's just somebody trying to con you. So please, please follow my simple rule. And it is simple. When there's a number calling you and it's not the recognized number of a family member or friend, if it's not, do not answer that call. If caller ID says it's a bank or credit union or brokerage or something you do business with, I don't want you answering that either. Let all other calls other than those from a trusted family member or friend go to voicemail. If it is a legitimate call, they'll leave a voicemail and you'll then be able to hear the voicemail and you'll be able to respond appropriately. What you don't want to do is when it's a pretexter pretending to be from the government or from a bank or your credit card company or whatever, get thrown off guard, have them tell you something just terrible is going on, we need this right now, wah, 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 whatever. Before you know it, you may have coughed up information that was key to them to be able to steal money from you or steal your identity. And that's why your phone is for friends and family only on inbound calls coming into you. If you follow my rule, you will eliminate overwhelmingly the chances that you are going to get scammed via your cell phone. Now, the other two things, texts coming into your cell phone and emails Most people now read their emails on their cell phone. 
be very wary and very careful with texts and emails. Never, never, never click on a link inside a text that you receive from what pretends to be, or an email you receive, pretends to be from a bank, credit union, service provider, utility company, whatever, the government, whatever, do not click on a link. Because what happens then is a criminal may, in fact, be able to put some form of virus or spyware on your phone. Don't click on links, period. Follow these rules, and you will have a happier, simpler life. And to those of you who said, you know what? I'm going back to a dumb phone. You know, there's been this counter-revolution of people going back just to plain old simple phones for cell phones because they're tired of the disruptions and they're tired of the crooks. And I have certainly not gone that direction. But I can tell you that's how much frustration there is about the problems that come along with the wonders that these cell phones bring our way. Krista? Okay, Chuck in New York says, Clark, I have a financial advisor from one of the giant monster mega banks who manages over $1 million for me. After Congratulations listening- on having more than yeah. a million, Chuck. That's good. After listening to your podcast and you telling us that a fiduciary can't sell commissioned insurance products, I asked my advisor if he sold commissioned products. He said, yes, but I don't own any. So should I be concerned enough to change advisors? Okay, this is a pattern we're hearing. We're hearing it especially from bank-based financial services. They are having their people wear two hats. Uh, We've even seen it occasionally with a non-bank affiliated financial firm. They claim that they are a fiduciary, but the firm has you sign two agreements. So the individual is wearing two hats. They're wearing one where they're supposedly a fiduciary only doing what's in your best interest. But then they decide, oh, now I'm putting on my other hat. Now I'm going to sell you garbage with giant commissions. And then they're not a fiduciary. That is a bridge way too far for me. There's too much temptation to do the wrong thing. And I urge you to be very cautious and careful. You seem to really trust this individual, but be wary if they start pitching a particular high-cost investment to you or commission-oriented investment. And plus the fees on the products that the bank in. base The bank-based brokerages tend to sell ultra-high-cost investments versus going with one of my favorite children, Fidelity, Vanguard, or Schwab, or Betterment or Wealthfront. Jared in Colorado says, my wife and I have lived in our house for seven years. I'm retiring from the military and we are moving east. Thank you for your service to our great nation. Our realtor has estimated that after fees and everything, we will profit roughly $300,000. We discuss nearly every morning what would be best to do with the money. Our plan is to buy a small home under $300,000 and live in that for a year while we find exactly where we want to be. 
we'd move into our permanent home and use the small house as a rental. Should we pay cash for the small home and buy our permanent home the old-fashioned way with a VA loan, or just put 20% down on the small home and have money for the permanent home? I feel like we have a lot of money to work with, and we're open to different ideas. So I'm going to blow your mind and go a completely different way, Jared. If it were me, I would rent for a year or six months or whatever till you find what you want that permanent home to be. And then I'd want that whole 300 to go from the house you're selling, and you'll get these proceeds, into the purchase of the new home. Because there's not going to be an advantage carrying a VA mortgage or otherwise moving forward because the mortgage interest rates, I can't see a scenario where they go back to the very low rates that we had before. Your money would efficiently be used going into the permanent home that you're going to get. I get the idea of having the rental property, but uh, what happens if you decide you don't even like that part of the country at all and you decide, oh, we're going to go somewhere else instead. And then you got this rental property in an area you're not even in. So I would rather you use that buffer time as a nomad, as a renter. And then once you figure out exactly where you want to live, what house you want, then you've got this pile of money that's been earning four point something percent in savings that you can then take and put in cash and full for the purchase of the new home. And then if you are buying one that's more expensive than that, your mortgage is much smaller. The higher prevailing interest rates you'll have in a year or so are going to be more manageable because you will have put in such a large down payment. Michael in Ohio says, I have several high-yield savings accounts. When I do ACH transfers among them, I've noticed that one bank takes at least three business days to complete the transfer to the account whereas the other banks complete the transfer on the next business day. Is the first bank getting my money on the next business day but not posting it into my account until later, thereby giving themselves a float with my money? Very possible. It's very possible that they're playing games through ACH. They're getting a day or two afloat on your money. That would become an issue if you needed your money quicker. And I don't have a sense from you if it's every single time It takes them three days where it takes the others one, but there's really no excuse for that. And the good news coming forward is once the Federal Reserve goes to the world standard for moving money, we won't have all these shenanigans anymore with the banks. Money will move for free and it will move instantaneously in a transfer from one financial institution to another And it will be a much better system. As best I can tell, we are the only developed country, including many developing countries, where we're the only holdout that has not gone to the world standard for quick movement of money through the central bank. So this problem, hopefully, will be soon in the rearview mirror. It's only been held up by lobbying by the banks that have not wanted the world standard system for moving money. Coming up ahead, speaking of fees, worse than bank fees, what could be worse than the fees the banks charge? What you pay in fees on an Airbnb, and there's a new list of the worst Airbnb fees in the country, 
I want to tell you who's worst. And the big thing is not who's worst. It's how incredibly large the average fees are added on to the stated price for an Airbnb. Airbnb is so successful because it's worked as a great alternative, particularly for people for longer stays or people that are traveling uh, multiple members of the same household, being able to stay under one roof instead of different hotel rooms, that kind of thing. But Airbnb is going through an awkward teenage stage, really, because there are issues going on. I talked recently about how Airbnb had a big summit where the CEO had said, man, we really haven't been listening to our customers on either side of the equation. The landlords renting places out, travelers renting the place from the landlords, and we need to fix these things. And one of the things is more transparency. So the stunner is how much the fees add to the stated cost of an Airbnb. Number one worst in the United States, the city of Atlanta, where the average total fees added on top of the nightly rate, 48% extra. 48%! The funny thing about this list is everybody loves lists, right? You go all the way down to 10th, and it's not that different. In 10th position, the fees are 44%. It's pretty consistent that the fees you pay are in the 40s. So Atlanta, number one at 48, Phoenix at 47%, Fort Myers Beach, 46%, Davenport, Florida, 45%, Memphis, Tennessee, 45%, Park City, Utah, 45%. You get the drill. Expect that if a rate quote to you is X number of dollars a night, multiply it times 1.5 to get a more realistic feel, if you want to be precise, 1.45, to get a real feel of the effective cost per night. So the stated rate means nothing. It is what you're actually paying when you pay your bill for that place. And with Airbnb, you're paying upfront. And as we heard of Clark Stinks recently from a landlord of an Airbnb, I'm not fair on the non-refundability of Airbnbs because that's an individual who loses the income if somebody later cancels. So, There are multiple sides of the story, but the fees and the requirements of the renter have kind of gotten out of control. So I want you to know that Airbnbs may fit your situation, and you may love them. Krista, right here with me, loves Airbnb. I do. And when you are looking to stay somewhere, if it's just you and Mike, do you still do Airbnb? No, usually that's, unless it's for a long period of time. But It's no, really for just, you with your kids. Yeah, when you want more than one room, I feel like it saves a lot of money. Plus, we have, you have a kitchen usually. It's worked out really well. But I always look for places that usually are hosted by super hosts, and then, which is a designation on Airbnb, and that have lots and lots of reviews. Um, and that is very helpful. But is it your experience what Forbes found that the, 
typical stay will have add-on fees that equate to roughly 50% add-on? I mean, I've only done it when we've traveled internationally, so I don't... I didn't have that experience when I've done it before, but I'm about to book another one. So I'll definitely pay attention to that. So our, our youngest is now old enough that what I do is I compare the cost of two hotel rooms mm-hmm. versus renting, you know, an apartment kind of situation. The two hotel rooms, most of the time end up being cheaper than staying in a two-bedroom Airbnb. Wow, I have not found that to be the case. I'll have to have you help me shop next time. <laughs> well, that's why we have the hotel shopping guide on that's true. Clark.com that's true. to show you how to do that. All right, speaking of hotels, Robin in California says, my husband and I recently booked a three-night stay with Priceline's Express deals. I checked out the hotel costs, including taxes and fees, prior to booking to compare rates before and after booking. I noted that Priceline charged over $60 more in taxes and fees than the hotel did. This extra did not include any of the extra charges by the hotel for parking, etc. When I contacted Priceline for a breakdown of the taxes and fees charged, they were unable to provide it and seemed annoyed that I would even ask. This has never happened to my bookings before with Priceline. How can I avoid this in the future? So, as best I know, what's happening when you book with a third-party hotel site and they list taxes and fees as one thing, one of the things they're putting in there is their additional markup that they're putting in there that they're charging you. So they're, it's, uh, it's really hard through the fog of how hotel bookings work to know what's actually going to the hotel you're booking, what's Priceline or another third-party taking, What makes up those fees? Obviously, there needs to be full disclosure where Priceline should make it clear if you ask what makes up those taxes and fees. And the fact that they were hostile and said they didn't know is really disturbing. And I'm going to do some digging on that because I use Priceline a huge amount, as you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing I've learned to do, though, booking hotels, I now go to... TripAdvisor, and they've got a thing where you can see the prices on multiple booking sources. And I look to see what the total price is on a hotel at various sources, always comparing it to booking direct with a hotel versus with a third party. And it's funny because if you look at the breakdowns, they're consistently different from each other. They're consistently inconsistent with what the taxes and fees and all that are depending on what the source is you're looking at, your total lowest price may not be close to who listed the lowest per night rate, just as we were talking about with the Airbnb issue. Yep. Tom in Washington says, what standalone cellular smartwatch, I'm looking for an Apple watch, plans are available. All I can seem to find are plans that are tethered to a cell or smartphone plan. All I want is a plan, preferably month-to-month or annual with a discount for the cellular watch itself. So you don't have to be a customer of T-Mobile or Verizon to do this. We know this from our cell phone plan researcher, Dallas, who writes our cell phone content. And she actually called all the main providers to to make sure we answered this question correctly. Yep. Because what we know is that the best deal of all is if you have a data cap on the watch, that generally with a watch plan, 
you're not going to need unlimited data. And T-Mobile has a deal they don't promote that if you set up auto pay as $5 a month for an Apple Watch, I don't know why it wouldn't also be true for an Android watch that has a um, has cellular built into it. You get 500 megabytes of data, which should be bytes, bits, whichever, which should be plenty on a watch plan for five a month. But if you want unlimited, it jumps all the way from five to 20. And then uh, Verizon also sells one. The Verizon plan is... $20 per month for cellular and unlimited data without a phone plan. That's Verizon. Verizon's 20 You have an activation fee, but you pay 20 AT&T will not let you have a watch plan with them unless you also have your regular phone cellular service with them. I don't know why you're doing that to people, AT&T. Okay, Lisa in New York says, I recently checked with my health insurance deductible online and was surprised to find a benefit I didn't know about. My insurer was offering up to $600 reimbursement for well-being. This includes everything from yoga mats and classes to amusement park and museum admission fees. While I don't appreciate the high premiums this likely perpetuates, I will certainly take advantage of this reimbursement and hope others will too. Please share with the listeners. Thanks for everything you do. I've listened since the 90s. It's a long time, Lisa. Thank you for that. Okay, so this is becoming more and more a thing with health plans where they offer you credits for doing activities. Most common one is gym memberships, Pilates classes, yoga classes, that kind of thing. I've never heard of one that pays for you to go to a museum before, Uh, maybe, or an amusement park. Maybe the whole idea is to try to get sedentary people active. Yeah, I love it. uh, Because activity alone improves people's health the less sedentary you are the better your health's going to be and the better your lifespan so who knows if your plan offers it i know my health plan does not i'm going to check mine and just see okay just in case i'm on my husband so we'll see well thank you so much for being with us today i hope the rest of your day is absolutely fantastic i hope that you found some inspiration for your own life in your own wallet here Because remember what we're about, helping you save more and spend less and avoid getting ripped off. Have a great day.